0: broadcasting live from
1: the business radio x studios in atlanta georgia it's time for workplace wisdom sharing insight perspective and
0: best practices for creating the planet's best workplaces now here's your host Welcome to Workplace Wisdom. Stone Peyton here with you this afternoon. And gang, you are in for a real treat. Please join me in welcoming to the broadcast with Bailey Strategic Innovation Group, the man himself, Mr. Eric Bailey. How are you, man?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Oh, man, we've really been looking forward to getting you on the show. No stranger, incidentally, guys, uh, to the Business Radio X microphone. We've had the pleasure of having Mr. Bailey in our Phoenix studio. So he is uh, – this is – what do you call it at the end of the concert when the people won't go home? This is encore, man. <laughs> encore, <laughs> more, more, more. Uh, but, no, we want to we want to talk to you about a, a variety of things, one of which uh, it's, it's my understanding that you're uh, quite accomplished in, if it not – if not at least a, a tremendous student of this this whole body of work around around brain science can can you talk yeah. to us a little bit about that and how maybe it relates to diversity and bias and inclusion and privilege and yeah speak to that a little bit if you would
1: you got it. So I am. I, I call myself a self-proclaimed geek of brain science, and and brain science isn't really a science. It's really a collection of many different scientific topics. So you've got neuroscience and psychology and linguistics and anthropology. So all of that kind of comes together of kind of the science of the brain, and and I, I found it very fascinating to not just understand like to pay attention to what people are doing but to start to understand why people do what they do or why people react the way that they do and over the last you know decade or so i've really started to read uh, a lot of psychology research neuroscience research anthropology linguistics all that all that research and and realize that we can start to explain why uh, you can be neighbors with somebody for 30 years and then they put the wrong political sign in their front yard and now you can't trust them <laughs> right and so we see these things happening over and over again and you know why we you know separate from each other why we get frustrated at each other And, uh, you know and more more specifically recently in the conversation of diversity and why why does why does talking about the the even the word bias why does that send some people uh, into a really highly emotional state and they want to shut down the conversation and understanding the brain science of this it actually allows me to engage with folks on, on a level of dialogue uh, rather than kind of preaching at people or telling people what they should be thinking.
0: So so knowing what you have come to learn about brain science, would you approach a conversation? Uh differently based on some early responses you got from me in that conversation or would you approach it differently because you've learned something about my background like exactly how do you leverage this thing called brain science to to uh to impact the way you conduct these conversations.
1: Yeah, so I've developed a a set of principles called the principles for human understanding. Essentially, they are 22 brain science principles that help us understand each other. And so, um, you know, if, if let's say that we're in some kind of, you know, heated debate about something and I think it should be done one way and you think it should be done another way or... I think this is right, you think it's wrong. And we you you know how your 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 blood pressure starts to rise, your heart starts <laughs> to pound, you start to get sweaty. Like those are all signals that your body is actually going into defense mode. Right. Uh-huh. Like, like back when we were in, you know, cavemen and cavewomen, uh running away from saber-tooth tigers per se. Like we have this reaction to protect ourselves. And interestingly, we have the same fear. Physiological reaction when we're in those kinds of uh, debates, and when you can start to recognize those signs in yourself, you can you can realize that your frontal lobe, where your higher level thinking is, your, your executive function is, has less uh, resources, less blood oxygen available there, and you're not gonna you're not gonna be at your best. Uh, you're gonna act more and more animalistic than you are human, and so you can recognize those. Take a couple of breaths and, and calm down, and then engage. Um, w- one of the things that we realize is that when if you're fighting me about something, I'm fighting you about something, there's actually a benefit to me letting go of my thoughts, letting go of trying to win and trying to understand why you think you're your position, not necessarily trying to change my idea, but to understand the humanity or the context or your history that got you to that belief uh, and, and what that does, it will connect us in a place of humanity. And from that point, we can have really cool dialogue.
0: Now you're using the, these principles, you are, you are using this and applying it to, to work with organizations, brands, associations uh, on, on topics like diversity and Mm -hmm. inclusion. Is it, is that, so how does this, how does this plug into your work around diversity, equity, inclusion, all those things?
1: Yeah, great question. You know, interesting. It's actually there's many layers to it. So, so at the first layer, there's a a colleague of mine uh, out of Harvard. His name is Frank Dobbins, and he's written a series of of articles and studies about why you know, quote unquote, diversity training doesn't work. And and the main reason is because people will associate a quote unquote diversity training with some problem. So if you're telling me I have to go to diversity training, you're telling me that I'm a racist or a sexist Uh. or a ageist or whatever, some kind of, some kind of, you're accusing me of being a bad person. And so people will actually walk into these sessions with, with like, they're already on the defense, right? They already resent you for sending them to to, the training. And so, what we do is at the very beginning, we, we, we clear all of that out wait, we're not here to tell you you're wrong. And all of these words that you think mean that you're a bad person, they actually don't mean that we kind of redefine the word bias. We redefine, you know, systemic discrimination. We redefine all of these things so that people can truly understand what they mean. And so, you know, how, how we understand brain science, we know when people are getting defensive, they're not going to be open to listening. And so how can you make them feel safer in dialogue? How can you make make them feel safer in conversation? And then, The other layer of it is all of these principles of brain science are fundamental communication principles. And so you can understand when someone gets frustrated, they're going to behave in this way. When someone feels hurt, they're going to behave in these ways. And so you can recognize when they're happening and say, oh, this is not my intention here of this communication. Let me pause, apologize, empathize, and restart. And when you you kind of layer it all together, you end up having really meaningful and powerful conversations.
0: All right. So let's back up a little bit um, and and think through this. There's this fundamental um, assertion or principle in place here, and I want to test it with you and get your take on this, are, that organizations that uh, are more diverse or at least identify as more diverse, that that they really... Are, uh, that, that equips them to, to outperform their competitors. Is that accurate? Is that what people think? And is that, is that the why? Is that why you're doing this work? Um, it's not
1: necessarily the why. That is a result that we see. Um, right. So we see that organizations that, are, that have a better representation across many different uh, categories, um, um, descriptor categories, you find that people feel that they belong and and i don't know if you know that right now kind of in across north america uh people in the workplace are reporting being more lonely than they ever have been now this uh, this is this is actually research that comes from before the pandemic before people huh. were actually socially isolating but being more more alone feeling uh identifying feelings of loneliness and so the reason that's happening is because we aren't engaging with each other as much as we used to in conversation. We're spending more time staring at our devices. Uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're kind of separating ideologically, um, you know, and we're working at our cubicles. And then when we go home and we're supposed to engage with people, we open up our laptops or our iPads and we focus on those things as well. And so when you when you really start to think about how belonging will impact someone's work, work uh, output, Well, if I feel like I belong, I'm less worried about not belonging. And so I'm more focused on getting the work done. I need to get done. If I feel like I'm connected better with, you know, my 10 closest peers, then I'm more likely to be collaborative. And if I run into some problem, I've got nine other people that I know can help me solve the problem. Unfortunately, a lot of times people are struggling through problems on their own because they're too embarrassed to ask for help. And when that happens, I mean, they'll eventually get to some solution, but may not be the best solution. It may take ten times as long to get there. And so, you know, all the data that shows that uh, the organizations that are that are diverse among a, a lot of different categories, you find that there's higher levels of belonging. You find that people, uh, the the in the turnover rates are lower, the the productivity rates are higher, uh, the downtime is lower, the the um, uh, recovery from, from uh, traumatic issues like uh, financial issues, they recover faster. And so I don't think that that is the why I do the work that I do, but it is a really powerful uh, uh, motivator for other organizations to step into the work as well.
0: Well, I'm pretty sure already uh, after a couple of minutes into this conversation that, that I don't have the patience or the IQ points to do the work you're describing, but, <laughs> but it sounds like it must be incredibly rewarding work. I, I mean, I can just mm-hmm. I can hear it in your voice. I can almost see it in your eyes, even though this is a virtual <laughs> interview. You really enjoy this work, don't you?
1: I absolutely do. And I think the reason that I love it so much is because, you know, I, I'm, I call myself a recovering HR person. I, I used to work in <laughs> HR um, uh, for a few years and and I know what it's like to sit through, you know, mandatory trainings and whatever. And it's, it's awful. It's, you know, it's life sucking. And and now I get to do these these like intentionally designed workshops and trainings and, and uh, um, organizations uh, with organizations around the country and around North America. And what I find is that people who typically don't engage in these kinds of conversations, they end up coming to me afterwards and say, I've never once felt comfortable in a conversation like this. And I felt you welcomed me in and I learned so much and I can't wait to do more. And like, that's, that's what lights me up. It's, it's not the person that has, you know, gone to a hundred diversity sessions and they're like, oh, great. I learned something new. I do like giving people new stuff, but I like welcoming more people into the conversation, because if we're, you know, we're talking about inclusion well, wouldn't it be great if everyone felt included in the conversation about inclusion? And <laughs> every every uh, every time I do this, I get at least one email from somebody. You know, sometimes it's a couple of paragraphs. Sometimes one person, you know, is a three-page email, and she said, you know, thank you. Here are some issues I've always run into, and you dismantled all of them. And I'm seeing the world differently now. Thank you. And like, that's that's what speaks to me. If I can help someone take one step forward, if I can tell an organization take one step forward, then, then I'm definitely doing doing my best work. Uh,
0: so I got to ask, how how does the whole sales and marketing thing work for a firm like yours? Is this topic just so central right now and you've been at it a while and your phone is ringing or even now, do you still have to go out and try to uh, or someone on your team go shake the bushes a little bit and say, Hey, this is important work and we do it and we'd like to talk to you about doing it with you. Uh, yeah. How's that work?
1: Well, interestingly, I'm very, I'm very privileged, very blessed to, um, not have to, to, to run out and ask. Um, my, I think the the response I've gotten, uh, you know, I started my company exactly five years ago, six years, six years ago, uh, this, uh, this week, um, but I started my company and I, my work my style my delivery my impact is unique enough like people have never seen anything like this that as soon as they're done if they, if they see me at some conference speaking or running some workshop speaking they run out and tell other people about it like you have to talk to this guy and so so you know the entire span of my business I've really just grown organically through referrals and um, people say, I need you to speak at this conference and I'm happy to do it. And oftentimes they'll pay me to do that. And so then I go out and I speak and then, you know, five people who sat in the audience, then call me up and say, I want you to do this for my organization. So kind of, I kind of get paid to do my marketing, which is, which is a a benefit. Um, But, you know, I, I find that the people that are referred to me, by other folks who've maybe seen me before, worked with me before, uh-huh. they are already the kind of person that are ready to do the work. So uh, I don't, I don't have to filter anybody out usually uh, because people are already ready, ready to do the engagement with me. So I, I definitely think I'm very, very fortunate. But I've worked really hard to when I get the opportunity to be in front of people, whether it's on a small stage or a large stage, you know, uh, five thousand people in an auditorium, or you know, even twenty people. I worked really hard to if I get that platform, I've got to knock it out of the park because this is my opportunity. And and, you know, fortunately, knock on wood, it's it's gone well so far.
0: So, so good work, uh, doing good work is a great sales tool, right?
1: <laughs> it, it is, it is, you know, people, people say all the time, like, you know, you work on your branding, work on your branding. And, and, you know, I'm i a, I'm a, also a former marketing guy. And before I was in HR, I was in uh, marketing and I, I'm a graphic designer. I know how important it is a good logo, good fonts, good kerning and spacing and, and colors. I know how important that is, but that's not the brand. Right. That is maybe an element of the brand, like the brand is what people feel about you when you're not telling them about you. And so Mm. if you go out and um, a perfect example right now, uh, uh, Tesla Motors, one of the the fastest growing car companies in the history of the world, they're dominating electric cars everywhere. And uh, they they've put together a really good car. They don't really have a marketing department at all. They're not they don't have a quote unquote branding department at all. They don't, have a, they don't even have a PR department. But what they've done is they built a really good car that people love to drive. And mm-hmm. that is their brand, right? Their brand is this is a great car to drive. It's fun. If you talk to anyone who's ever owned a Tesla, they don't say I like a Tesla. They say, I love my Tesla. Everyone mm-hmm. says that. And that becomes the brand. And so I think a lot of folks spend a lot of time on the the, the colors and the shapes of the logos And I think what we really should be spending time on is making the experience for our customers or our clients as good as it possibly can be. So they can't wait to go tell somebody else about you.
0: All right. So just between us girls here. um, (laughs) (laughs) No, I'll cut it out if you decide you don't want to answer. But I I, got to ask. uh, do you ever find yourself just you go out and you're brilliant on the road, you know? Maybe you're worn out when you get back at your own organization, and and, and you've you've had a tremendous impact, and you really you re, you're putting a dent in the universe. You come back to your own to your own ranch, and you're human, and some of your own people because they know what you're out there teaching, and they know what it's supposed to look out. Uh, call you out <laughs> on not doing what you, what you just went out there and taught her. We got. Do, do you ever find yourself maybe you know sometimes falling short of the of the of the mark in that regard? Every single day. <laughs> yes.
1: Every. And I think I think that's I think that's one of the most interesting things about, about the way that I do this work is that I will never claim to be an expert at it. Like I I literally wrote the book on this stuff. My book's called the cure for stupidity. Right. And so like, (laughs) I literally wrote the book on this, but the, the, these principles are basic humanity. Like we all fall victim to, to these every single day. And it's not about Perfection, but rather awareness. And so I, I give full reign to everyone on my team to call me out on my stuff. And it, and it happens all the time, all the time. And I, and I think you know, when I, when I'm on stage, I'm talking about my own failures. Like the, the, the examples that I give are my own failures and people relate to that. Like I, I come in with humility and vulnerability and I tell stories about, you know, how I, how I mispronounced a word my entire life. And someone told me about it and I reacted really harshly and strongly. Like you are crazy. What do you mean? I know how to speak. And and then after a while I'm like, Oh, maybe there's something for me to learn here. Right. And, and I think that's, that's exactly it is, is I go out and I, do this and I do not want to put out the image that I'm perfect because I am absolutely not. And uh, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head, right? Creating this environment where, where, where my team can say, Hey, Eric, do you realize that you misspelled three words on your presentation? And like <laughs> how I show up after that means a lot more than what I say I'm on stage. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. Uh, so, so tell us about Holy shift.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so holy shift, uh the, that's the make sure you enunciate. I love that you enunciate well, uh, because it can it can lead people to, to to say, what are you talking about? You gotta edit that out. No, no, no. Holy shift, um, it's it's a it's a concept that I developed to really help people engage in this conversation a different way. So the full title is holy shift completely changing the conversation about diversity and discrimination and bias and privilege using brain science. And so this the shift that we are making is from the way that we've previously thought about these concepts and into something new. Uh, one, one of my favorite quotes of all time is, is Albert Einstein, and he said, we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. Yeah. Now that is, it's often misquoted, you know, Einstein's definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. He never said that he, he said this and this idea, right. Is, is that we will oftentimes get into these patterns of behaviors and habits and then find ourselves in some trouble. And then we employ the same patterns of behaviors and the same habits that got us there to get out of trouble. And it makes no sense. Right? We do this over and over again. and so. What I've learned to realize is that if we can do things differently, if we can think about these things differently, if we can explore differently, we can have different results. And and that's really what I want to give people. So, So, you know, we're going to talk about things like racism and we're going to talk about things like privilege. And if that makes you feel uncomfortable, great. Pay attention to that feeling. Let's explore why it's uncomfortable. And I ask people, you know, I've probably asked, you know, 25,000, 30,000 people around the country, you know, how do you feel when you hear the phrase? And this is something we use a lot in the United States, this phrase called white privilege. And people have this huge range of emotions. When I ask that question, I feel angry. I feel shame. I feel upset. I feel like it's a weapon. I feel like I'm uh, un. un, um, Uh, unfairly criticized because I'm white. I feel like I've worked hard and I'm not being acknowledged for what I've done. I write all these different things. And I'm like, and I say, thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for your candor. Thank you for exploring. I think you're trusting me with that. And then what we do is we break that down What does, what does privilege even mean? Right. And so like, we think that privilege, you know, it sounds like, you know, a a quote unquote life of privilege, silver spoon in your mouth, never had to work for anything, chauffeured ever. That's not what it means. Our privilege just means that a member of a group may not have to worry about something that a member of a different group may have to worry about. Hmm. And so when you think about it, like, I don't know if you have kids, but I've got three kids and my job as a parent is to give my kids privilege. Like, I don't want them to worry about the things that I had to worry about. Right. The goal is to give them privilege. There's this concept that we have, you know, called the quote unquote American dream, which is, you know, essentially one generation doing better than the previous generation. Right. And, and that really is all about privilege, right. A lack of worry. And so privilege isn't a bad thing. It's just a thing, and we can acknowledge it in such a way. And then I'm like, okay, well, if privilege is all about worry, then there are an infinite numbers of qualifiers we can put in front of that word right now we're talking about you know quote unquote white privilege but there's also black privilege there's um uh uh, live in a municipality privilege there's right all these how about your handedness i don't know if you're a right-handed person but there is privilege in being right-handed and and way in which we explore this is you know i talk to my left-handed colleagues and they say well I have to worry about grabbing a pair of scissors because they don't work in my left hand. I have to worry about buying a baseball glove or golf clubs. I've got to worry about smudging ink as I write, my, write on a piece of paper with a pen. And I'm like, what does that mean? I'm like, oh, in English, we write left to right. So a right-handed person, they rest their hand on the paper and their hand leads the ink as it goes down. <laughs> or a left-handed person, their pen leads their hands. They're smudging their ink all the time. And it's like, I never thought about that. That is privilege. I haven't had to worry about this thing that somebody else does. And when we get there, it's like, oh, privilege isn't a bad thing, right? It's not saying I'm, I'm a bad person because I'm right-handed. No, it's, it means that I have this opportunity for empathy for somebody that might be going through something that, that I don't. And that's that's the real conversation where we get to. Uh, so so yes, very passionate about this. If you couldn't tell,
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I I can tell, and you're obviously very good at your work. I'm a middle aged white guy. I've always, mm-hmm. up until now, I gotta tell you, you've reframed it for me. I have <laughs> bristled with this idea of white privilege. I'm extremely Mm -hmm. blessed. I make a very comfortable living doing some really cool work, but Uh it hasn't all been a downhill skate. I really did put in, you know, my 10,000 hours, but you've reframed the term in such a way that I am, I'm going to be so much better at dinner talking about or the next time this topic comes up. And in fact, rather than try to skirt around it or scoff, I might even bring it up. So man, yes. you, you, you earned your keep today, man. You,
1: <laughs> well, I'm glad it's, 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 it's a really powerful concept because you have worked hard. And I think when you, when you reframe privilege like that, and kind of the more like the, the real, what it really means There are many things in your life, in my life that I've worked very hard for that now afford me privilege, right? So so here I am, this 30-something Black guy. And yes, I have many privileges as well. You know, I've worked hard and I've got degrees and I have a house and a marriage and all of those things give me less worry than than maybe someone who doesn't have a house or doesn't have a degree or or isn't married. Right. There's there's certain things I don't have to worry about. And I think that's that's entirely it. I want to help the world kind of disentangle all of the negative emotions around some of these words and phrases so we can engage in dialogue just like what you just said like i've always bristled with it and many many people do and it's like if we reframe it and now we can have a really cool conversation about Oh, what, given there's an infinite number of privileges, what are some privileges we have? And when I ask that question, I mean, it's amazing what pours out. People say, oh, I'm, you know, what people will call attractive and there's a privilege for that. And I'm, you know, I'm whatever. It's, <laughs> it's really cool when when the conversation kind of explodes in that way.
0: So can't we extend this to talk about uh, recruitment and selection, the idea of a diverse hire, the the things we should focus on as we create a a structured uh, something with some rigor around how we approach recruiting and selecting people and ensuring this, um, this, this element of, of diversity. It it extends to those topics, right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think diversity in, in hiring and HR is, is probably one of the, Mm -hmm. I'm going to challenge my words here. I want to say the easiest, uh, it's not easy. It's probably one of the first things we should be doing. Uh, because if you look at, if you look at your workplace, Uh, Very often you can see the fingerprints of bias in hiring, right? You have uh, at certain levels of your organization, they're mostly men. You have uh, mostly certain races at different levels of the organization. And so it's probably not a good representation of the folks that live in or work in around you. And, And again, bias, one of those words, bias is not bad. It can lead to some bad outcomes, but bias by itself is not bad. I think what we want to do is we want to understand what our biases are. Right. For for many folks across across the kind of the Western world is we have a preference for lighter skin. We have a preference for taller people. We have a preference for, um, you know, male people. We have all these kind of preferences when it comes to looking for expertise. Uh, We have a preference for people that we like hanging out with. You know, if you're in a hiring situation with somebody and you have a great conversation because you can connect on a lot of different levels, you're more likely going to want to work with them. And so if you had to hire someone who have the same credentials, Wouldn't you prefer to hire someone that you had a great conversation with rather than someone who was awkward? Most likely, yes. Right. But that's that's a bias. And so one of the things that we're working with with organizations around the country is helping them to see where those biases may be and then call them out. And say, you know, I, I noticed that every time I hire, I see these kind of patterns, nothing wrong with that, but I just want you to be aware of it, kind of partner in hiring. Um, and as we start to talk about these things, you know, we see people doing all kinds of really fantastic interventions, like let's do blind uh, blind uh, um, uh, uh, applications, so let's, you know, they'll enter in their demographic information for sure, but then let's strip that out. We don't know their name, huh. what school they went to, where they went, or we know where they live. And let's just evaluate it kind of like was the TV show, The Voice, right? <laughs> right. And just yeah. evaluate on the things we actually care about. Or uh, there's this really interesting uh, study that was done on uh, uh, hiring for uh, the symphony. And there's this really interesting thought that males are better at playing. Uh, uh, symphony instruments, string instruments, cello and, and and viola and whatnot, and they they did a, a test and they started having people play their pieces or their their uh, audition pieces behind a screen, uh-huh. behind a curtain, so you couldn't see who it was, male or female, you couldn't see the shape of anybody, and they found that the rate of female uh, cellists increased significantly. Wow! Because people would oh, I don't, I don't have a bias. Well, maybe we do. And so when you slowly start to think about what you can do to just evaluate it, it might give you some really interesting insights. And the the thing that I need people to realize is that bias is not bad, right? If we acknowledge I have this bias, it's not a bad thing, right? You just want to start talking about this is the way that I've seen the world my entire life. And, you know, the way that our brains work, we want to expect the way we've always seen it. To be the way it's going to be in the future. That's, it's a, it's a, a a tool to our benefit to do that, but we have to identify, Hey, this is what, this may be what's going on. I want you to know.
0: All right. So in a, in a moment, before we wrap, I'm going to make sure that our listeners know how to get in touch with you or someone on your team. If they want to talk about these topics, I'm going to make sure that they can access the, the book. But right now here in the moment, when someone is first listening to, to this Are there a handful of things they can do? And maybe we should say, and don't do. I don't know. But just, (laughs) what are, what are some things that, you know, before you, before we engage you or before we read you book, your book, that maybe we should go back to the shop and start, and start working on just, just some, some small moves. Are there, do you have some counsel in that regard?
1: Absolutely. I think uh, before before you bring it to work, the first thing I want to challenge everybody to do is the next time you're in some kind of debate, whether it's about politics or about what to eat for dinner. Right. I don't I don't care what the debate is. The next time you're in some kind of debate, instead of trying to prove them wrong or instead of trying to make your point, I want you to stop and I want you to say these words to them. Why are you so passionate about your position? Now what that does is it puts you in a place of what what I call radical curiosity. And the space of radical curiosity, so so that that phrase, that question is is intentionally designed for a couple of reasons. One, you say, you know your position, so you're acknowledging I have a position. you have we're acknowledging that difference. But then you say the word passionate. And passion is is associated with strong emotion, but more accurately, it's a positively charged, strong emotion. So you could say, you know, why are you so obsessed with getting your way? I mean, it kind of gets to the same thing, but (laughs) it's not the same thing, right? And so you say, why are you so passionate about your position? Now, when you kind of look at the whole thing, you're asking a why question, not a what or a how question. So you're not saying prove to me why you're right. Give me more facts and figures and data. What you're actually asking them is what is underneath, what is driving you? And when you get to that level, it actually puts you in a place of trying to understand their humanity. I've got a colleague, actually a family member, uh, it's a loose family. It's like my mom's new husband's sister's new husband. Right. And we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're diametrically opposed on many political issues. And we are, you know, both very intelligent people and we're, you know, we, we battle back and forth, you know, trying to trying to prove each other wrong. And we, we, at one point, a couple of years ago, we just stopped. We stopped that kind of that fight. And, and we asked this question of each other. And, and I asked him and I said, you know, why are you so passionate? And he explained this history of working in the FBI and this history of of working or, or being a, a sailor in the Navy. All of these experiences that I have never had and will never have. It provided this really complex tapestry of what brought him to his, his position. And all of a sudden I saw this really complex and beautiful humanity. Now I didn't come to the same conclusion, but I understood him in a, in a way I never had before. And that, that allowed us to have different kinds of conversation. So it's, it's not about like changing their mind or changing your mind, but rather getting to a place where you understand each other. Like, I don't know if you've ever, ever been like fully understood by somebody you're talking with, like, it feels really good. You feel connected to them and you feel seen. And and I think that if we can give more people around us, that experience of being seen and heard and understood it'll 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 deconstruct a lot of these issues that we're dealing with right now
0: Wow. So well said. Why are you so passionate about your position? I, man, you have, you have so well equipped me for my next <laughs> <laughs> half a dozen conversations. This is why, guys, this why everybody should have a radio show. You get to interview people like Eric. They're smart. They're passionate. They're, they're happy to share stuff with you. Uh, oh, man, this is so much fun. I could talk with you all afternoon, but I really can't. <laughs> uh, but we're, we we got to do this again sometime. Time, but for now, let's do make sure that our listeners uh, have some points of contact. Whatever you feel like is appropriate, whether it's LinkedIn, email, website. Uh, but I want to make sure they can get in touch with you, uh, and let's also make sure they know how to get their hands on the on the book that you that you mentioned.
1: Absolutely. So, so you can find me on most social platforms as Eric M as in Michael Bailey. Uh, I, I, I used to go by Eric Bailey, but there's actually another incredibly handsome black former athlete speaker named Eric Bailey uh, based in Australia. So uh, when I wrote my book, I actually, I was getting his emails. So I had to actually add the M in there for my pen name. So now my professional name is Eric M Bailey. Um, But you can find me, you know, Eric M Bailey on, on Facebook, on Instagram, on LinkedIn, I'm very active on LinkedIn, on Twitter, um, or you can just visit my website, which is ericmbailey.com. Um, you can find the book there. The book is called the cure for stupidity using brain science to explain irrational behavior. And, and it's, it's fun giving that book as a gift because people always have a fun reaction to it. Like, are you trying to tell me something? Uh, because like, Oh, there, here's the cure. I gave you the cure. Uh, no, but it's, it's really fun. It's, it's written in the style like I speak. So uh, you, you, you'll, you'll probably hear my voice as you're, as you're reading through it, but there's a, actually interesting, a lot of interactivity in the book. Um, uh, there's a a lot of exercise that I run through uh, like I would do if we were, were being face to face. So uh, it's, it's a fun book. It's a quick read, uh, but it also it's it doubles as a great book club book. I, I used to host a lot of book clubs huh. uh, and so I actually wrote this book as a book club book. So uh, you can you can use it there as well.
0: Well, Eric, it has been an absolute delight having you on the show. Thank you so much for for joining us. What a marvelous way to invest a, a Thursday afternoon. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Stone. Thanks for having me. Thanks for a great conversation. You can tell I'm enjoying it. I'm smiling. My cheeks hurt from smiling so much.
0: (laughs) Hey, and please do uh, stay on the line even after we go off air. I want to visit with you for a moment just after. But uh, yeah, great job, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. This is Stone Payton for our guest today, Eric M. Bailey, and everyone here at the Business Radio X family saying, we'll see you next time on Workplace Wisdom.